I don't know if you know this, we're in a uh, series through Nehemiah. We're almost done. We've got three more, I think three more messages to go. It'll be uh, around 42 altogether. And uh, it's been an exciting look. But I have a lot to say today. And you're going to have to listen really fast. And if I go over time, it's because you're not listening fast enough. So you've got to listen fast. I'm going to give you a lot of information, but hopefully it's going to be relevant because I think the book of Nehemiah is incredibly relevant to our lives today. Even though it's a historical book, it is relevant. It is the infallible truth of the Word of God. So let's open up God's Word, Nehemiah 13. Let's anticipate, let's expect that God is going to speak to you. He's going to speak to me. And He's going to speak to us in a way that's going to help us fight this battle against sin to win. Let me introduce this way. J.O. Sanders, you're not going to see this quote, so you've got to listen to this one. J.O. Sanders, in his book, Enjoying Intimacy with God, he wrote this. Are you ready? Here's what he wrote. And we're going to, I'm going to introduce the main point, or at least one of the main points. He wrote this. The flesh may be defined, not organic flesh, okay? And we're not talking your skin. That organ, that spiritually organic flesh, that nature inside. He says this, the flesh may be defined as man's fallen nature as under the power of sin. Man's fallen nature as under the power of sin. It is the evil principle in man's nature. The traitor within who is in league with the attackers without. The outside. The traitor that's inside in league in partnership with the attackers on the outside. That's the flesh. So I want you to hold on to that as I introduce our passage by giving you three backstories. You're going to need to know three backstories if you're going to make sense of chapter 13, 1 through 14. And let's start. We're going to read. Verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. You follow along if you would. Nehemiah 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water. But hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. You've got Ammonites. You've got Moabites. They're two people groups that came from Abraham's nephew, Lot. So if you remember, Lot made famous through Sodom and Gomorrah, whose wife turned into a pillar of salt. Lot leaves the destroyed towns He's going with his daughters. They go to a cave and his daughters look around and they say, you know what? There's no men here. We're not going to have children. What are we going to do? So here's what they did. Now listen, the Bible doesn't hold back. You get to see the worst. You get to see the best. So you've got lots of daughters that say, we're going to get our father drunk and we're going to sleep with him and let's get pregnant. And they do. They get lot drunk. The oldest daughter's first night. Youngest daughters, the second night, and from those illicit union unions come the older daughter's son, Moab. There's the Moabites. 
And then you've got from the younger daughter, the son that be, that will become the father of the Ammonites. Now you've got the Moabites and the Ammonites. They both come from this illicit union of Lot's daughters with their father. Not a very good beginning. And they settle beside Israel. So here we go. We've got these, remember Abraham, Lot. Lot is his Nephew, Abraham is his uncle. Here's this, these two people groups that come from this union. And now they settle beside Israel. They speak a language that's almost identical with Hebrew language, the, the Jews language in the Old Testament. And they oppose God's people. So God commanded no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. He says, don't bring him into my house. Don't bring him into my presence. When you gather together to worship, don't bring the Ammonites. Don't bring the Moabites. Even to the 10th generation, he stiffens it. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So never, ever bring a Moabite, never bring a, an Ammonite into the presence of the worshiping people of God. They're forbidden, they're excluded. So I've told you there's three backstories. This is all introduction. Here's the first one. You ready? You're listening quickly? The first backstory is this. There's a guy named Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. He's one of three enemies... Of the people of God that have worked all through the book of Nehemiah. Trying to, trying to prevent Jerusalem from building the wall. And Tobiah was the governor of the Ammonites who lived, they lived east of Jerusalem. So we find in verse five, look at your text. We find in verse five that he had integrated himself right into the very house of God. You see, Tobiah represents the flesh, the old nature. Remember from J.O. Sanders, the traitor within who is in league with the attackers without. He's gotten inside Jerusalem. He's gotten inside the house of God. He represents the flesh. It lives in us, Christian brother and sister. You've got this spiritually organic nature that is battling against the Spirit of God. It wants to defeat God. It wants to render your faith foolish. It wants to make you go after sin. That's the backdrop, number one. The second backstory is this. Nehemiah represents somebody as well. You've got Tobiah that represents the nature to sin, the flesh. You've got Nehemiah, he represents someone as well. Here it is. Nehemiah represents Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. Jesus Christ isn't going to live for another 400 and close to 440 years. It's called the type or a representation. There are types, there are representations in the Old Testament that point to Jesus who would come. Let me show you how you see this. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Jesus Christ drank the cup from the king of kings, that cup filled with our sins. Nehemiah wept over the state of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ did the same. Nehemiah was sent by the king, empowered by the king. Jesus was sent by the king of kings, his father. They both had high positions. They left those high positions to rescue their people. Both were mocked. Both were opposed by their enemies. They both rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Both were falsely accused. Neither would burden their people. And instead, both of them set the slave 
slaves and the captives free. You've got Nehemiah who cleansed the temple. You've got Jesus who did it twice. You see, Nehemiah represents Jesus. And if you're going to make sense of the book of Nehemiah, you've got to know these backstories. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is the master builder of our salvation. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The parallels are so significant that one must see in Nehemiah Jesus Christ. But there's a third backstory. So here we go. I've given you two. You've got Tobiah who represents that flesh that's in every Christian battling against God. Nehemiah represents Jesus who is in a battle against Tobiah and a battle against the flesh within us. The third one, the third backstory is this. God's house, which is sprinkled all through the book of Nehemiah. God's house was the temple. Today, God's house, his dwelling place, is the heart of every believer. His dwelling place is the gathering of the people of God. So when you and I, right now, we're together, we're worshiping, we're, we're looking to God to speak into our hearts. Listen, God is here. We're two or more gathered. There he is in your midst. So we've got a house of God that's in your heart. You carry God with you through the Holy Spirit. And we've got the house of God where two or more are gathered. Right now, we're worshiping. This is the house of God. So here we go. You've got Tobiah representing the flesh. You've got Nehemiah representing Christ. And you've got this battle between the two of them. It's taking place in our hearts, and it's taking place in our churches. That's the introduction. Now let's jump into it. You ready? So you don't know, you don't know how to read and study verses 1 through 14 if you don't know those three backstories. We've got a situation. Can you look at it with me? Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. You've got this guy named Eliashib. He's allowing Tobiah, who's been their enemy through the entire book. He's allowing him to have a room right in the house of God. Remember the commandment, Deuteronomy? No Ammonite, no Moabite shall ever come into the assembly of God's people. Here's Tobiah and Ammonite. Eliashib lets him right into the house of God. Gives him a room. And you might be asking yourself, well, where was, where was Nehemiah? How could Nehemiah let this happen? Look at verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went back to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. You see, he was in Jerusalem for 12 years. He came the first time in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. In the 32nd, he had to go back. He had to report to the king. Here's what we've done. After some time, we don't know how long, probably a couple years, he says to the king, King, I'm hearing bad things. i got to go back to Jerusalem. The king says, you can go. 
He returns and he returns and he finds that the enemies of God had been successful. By the way, can I give you a sneak peek? Chapter 13, there's three enemies of God. There's Tobiah, there's Sanballat, there's Geshem the Arab. All three of them are finding success when Nehemiah left. He comes back and he sees the enemies of God had been successful at getting inside the wall of the city, right into the very house of God. And friends, here we go. We're already starting to learn a lesson. The Tobias of our flesh, they will never, ever yield. You will never get a weekend from the battle of temptation. Never. They're never going to give up. They're never going to say, you beat me. They're never going to give you a sick leave. They're never going to give you a personal day. They're going to battle you. They're going to battle me every day of our lives. That nature that wants to oppose God is relentless. It will not yield. And it wants to lodge into our hearts. Now you ought to be getting some of the meaning of this message already. Are you struggling with the Tobias in your heart? Have you let sin lodge in your heart and we've got to as a leadership of a church make sure that we're not letting the tobias lodge into our church listen you go to hackman's i'm going to tell you there's tobias all over the shelves don't go into hackman's with your discernment down you go in there and you read and you discern and you bring it against the word of god there's bad theology all through that store there's bad theology all through churches You never drop your guard because when you drop your guard, the Tobias find a way in. And thankfully, Nehemiah shows us how to respond, how to deal with our flesh, that stubborn old nature. And he shows us what Jesus is going to do to help you win the fight. And here's what we're going to learn. That was the situation. Tobiah is lodging in the house of God. What do we do about it? Here's where it gets practical. I'm going to give you five ways that Nehemiah, who represents Jesus, dealt with a Tobiah in the house of God. Friends, listen, look at me. It's the same five ways for us. Nothing's new. Do you remember I've told you this maybe 20 weeks ago? I don't know. This series has been kind of long. Do you remember that I've told you that the, the enemies have only so many strategies? Listen, their strategies are not infinite. They have used the same strategies from the Garden of Eden... To today. There's not that many of them. They're just really, really good at changing them up. They're really good at implementing them. But there's not a lot of them. And so the solution, the five steps that Nehemiah is going to take, who represents Christ, it's the same today. And if we can learn these, then you can start gaining victory over those Tobias that are lodging in your heart. You can start to win the fights. You can start a battle. Gain victory over sin. You want that? Now let's be really honest. Remember, when you come to church, you're real. You're not looking at a pastor that's arrived. I sin all the time, and I hate it. Are you struggling? How many of you have got a pattern in your life of sin that you cannot seem to defeat? And how many of you are tired of falling... In the same sins. And it's ruining your marriage. It's ruining your friendships. It's ru- I know a guy that's in our church. He's not been coming lately. That's what Tobiah does. It makes you slip out of fellowship. But he can't keep a job. 
He keeps getting fired. I just saw him this last week. He says, Pastor Tim, I've got to keep this one. I'm running out of options. I said, you are running out of options. You need the help of Christ. You need his grace. We all need help. So here's five steps that are the same today as they were back in the day of Nehemiah. Here's the solution. Verse 6. I then discovered the, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. Here's the first one. You've got you've to catch Tobiah. You've got to discover him. That's half of our battle. We turn a blind eye. These things are living inside of our hearts and somehow we're deluded. Somehow we are fooled. But here's Nehemiah. He comes back to Jerusalem and just like he did the first time, he looks around at the state of affairs and he discovers that Tobiah had been given a room in the house of God. Now look at what it says in verse 5. He's given a large chamber. Not just a room. Let me, let me kind of break this down for you. This is a palatial estate. This is the penthouse suite. The, see, the temple had at the very center the house of God. You walk into the temple, you walk into the courts, here's the house of God in the very, very center. But all the way around the house of God were all of these rooms, all of these chambers, these chambers built into this court, and they were large, and some of them were massive made even more massive in the days of Jesus by Herod, but they're built into the courtyards, and they, these chambers, they serve all sorts of purposes. Here's Tobiah. He's been given a large storage room that's been converted for residential use. Now, I want you to think small warehouse, because now you're approaching the size of this. It even have verse 9. Look at verse 9. It even has multiple rooms in it. Not just one big room. It's a large penthouse suite with multiple rooms. Now how could Eliashib do this? How could he let the enemy that was mocking them... Don't you remember chapter 4? If even a fox steps up on that wall, it's going to crumble down. He's mocking them. He's trying to assassinate Nehemiah. He's trying to discredit the people of God. He's trying to get collusion with the enemy so that they can prevent the Jews from succeeding. How could Eliashib give him a room? Look at verse 4. Here's a clue. He's related to him. He's related to him. We don't know how, but it's likely through intermarriage. He's related to Tobiah. You see, when you dishonor God's word, you are not to be unequally yoked. It's all through the Bible. Don't, don't marry a Gentile or don't marry your enemy. Don't be unequally yoked. Christians today is don't marry a non-believer. If you marry a non-believer, you're going to make room for your flesh. This is what he did, Eliashib did. There was room made. And whenever you dishonor God's word, you make room for the flesh. And the flesh knows how to look good. You know what Tobiah's name means? It means Jehovah is good. That's the name Tobiah. You've got Eliashib, by the way. Did you know he's the high priest? This isn't just one of the priests. 
This is the top guy. This is the high priest, chapter 3. This is the guy, the first one on the wall, chapter 3. This is the guy who built, rebuilt the sheep gate. You remember the sheep gate? That's the gate of the gospel. That's the gate of the word of God, the proclamation of the good news. This is Eliashib's gate. It represents how people come to know Christ. This is Eliashib. And by the way, if you go to chapter 10, when you've got this covenant, when they reaffirmed their love for God, their obedience to God, by the way, you don't see Eliashib's name on it. He didn't sign it. He grew tolerant. Intolerance moves, removes the distinction between the world and Christians. Listen, if you're becoming tolerant, then you're becoming like the world, that's what, the, that's what happens, that's the progression. Christianity is to be intolerant. Tolerance leads to apathy, which in turn leeches away the power of our Christian testimony. You see, our enemies are incredibly patient. Do you know that our enemies can unfold their strategies over decades there could be a little thing that you do today that will unfold and come into fruition for the devil in about 10 or 20 or 30 years. A little crack in your marriage today can lead to divorce 30 years later. Do you know how many people, you know, people that come into my office for marriage counseling? I've kept track of this. The average ages are in late 40s, early 50s. Cracks emerged early in their marriage. They did not shore them up. They did not heal those cracks. Those cracks widen and they fall into the chasm of divorce sooner or later, so often. Our enemies are patient. If you make room for them today, they will unleash their strategies tomorrow. And here's what Satan does. He baits the hooks with the temptation of the lures of the world. Do you know that? Temptation doesn't work if you don't have a desire for it. So Satan takes this hook called temptation. He baits it with the lures of the world and he pulls our desires to it. Those desires of the flesh, the Tobias in us. But Nehemiah discovers this, implying that he's examining the house of God. He sees it. By the way, Jesus... Jesus does this in Revelation chapter 2 through 3. You know what he does? He walks around his churches. I can tell you he's doing it right now. In fact, when I preached on this, I gave the imagery. He's walking up and down our aisles. He's examining our church. He's examining me. He's examining you. And he's got eyes that can see down to the very bottom of your souls and the very bottom of mine. And he's seeing what is pleasing to him, and he's rejoicing, and he's seeing what's displeasing to him. Listen, Christian brother and sister, and he's arming for war. Did you hear that? He sees what's pleasing to him, and he rejoices. He sees what's displeasing to him, and he's ready to go to battle. And our job is to battle with him. Our job is to fight the fight with them. Our job is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who's working in us so that we want what he wants. We want his pleasure. You know, J. Vernon McGee once wrote, In the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil cannot destroy the church by persecution, 
the next thing he did was to join it. Jesus examines our churches. And he looks deeply into each of our hearts as well. And when he discovers the Tobias of our flesh lodging in our hearts, he acts. And he moves us to the second thing. The first one is you've got to catch him. He's going to open your eyes. You've got to catch him. And when he opens your eyes, you've got to confess them. Notice the response of Nehemiah. Can you look in your text? He says, I was very angry. I was very angry. That means incensed, livid. I mean, you've got to love Nehemiah. How many of you struggle with anger? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you struggle with anger? You know, most of our anger, David Paulison, who is down in uh, Philly area, he's a theologian, counselor, he says 95% of our anger, he estimates, is unrighteous. Well, if that's even close to being true, there's not a whole lot of our anger that's righteous. I'll tell you what righteous anger is. Righteous anger is all about justice and glory. Righteous anger responds to injustice and acts on the part of the suffering to bring glory to God. That's what, that's what righteous anger does. Anger that ends with my glory is unrighteous. Anger that ends with my reputation, my peace is unrighteous. But anger that ends with God's glory, that's righteous. And God's glory brings justice to people who are suffering. So we've got Nehemiah who is very angry, righteously angry, and he knows Tobiah. He's been warring against Tobiah in the entire book. And he doesn't, he doesn't want Tobiah anywhere near his people or his God. Now let's get really down to the heart. Here's what I want you to answer. First of all, can you see the Tobias in your heart? Can you see them? And when you see them, do you get very angry? So you're not like Nehemiah if it just irritates you or annoys you, or disrupts your day. If you're going to be like Nehemiah, and God shows you the Tobiah that's lodging in your heart, that sin nature, that's, that, that hook that's got the temptation in your heart's going after it, if he shows you that, you've got to get incensed. You've got to get very angry. And when you get very angry, look what Nehemiah does. He threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. He didn't consult with anybody. He didn't pray about it. He didn't sit and think about it. He acted instantly. See, there's no deliberation when God shows you a Tobiah in your heart. It's got to be responded to immediately. Because the flesh is going to act like it's got your best interests in mind. Like it just wants to help you be happy. But it really wants to destroy you. Christian brother and sister, look at me for a minute. You know what? The Tobiah wants to destroy you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to destroy me. 
This is not some benign enemy that every once in a while moves around in your soul. This is an active, spiritually organic power that is opposing God. That's in a battle with the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And one's trying to get the upper hand over the other. God sovereignly is going to win. But we've got to battle it like Nehemiah. You've got to get angry with it. And when you see it, you've got to start chucking it out of your heart. It's got to be ruthless. You gotta hate it. You gotta hate the old man. That's what the old nature's called. You know what the Puritans called it? See, the Puritans had a lot of these things right. Some of us see their stuff as being, that's old, antiquated. I don't want anything to do with it. Listen, the Puritans, they knew what they were doing. They called it the mortification of the heart. Mortify means to subdue or deaden. They wanted to deaden their old nature. They wanted to deaden the flesh. They wanted to subdue it. They understood that the flesh is our enemy. It's not our friend. You've got to have a violent response when you see it. And this is why Jesus said, he wrote, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You know, I've shared this a long time ago, but the worst parenting I have ever committed, I'm pretty sure by far it's the worst, was when my oldest son got angry at Aaron, my next son, and smacked him. Now Matthew was probably five, Aaron was three. I thought in myself, how can I teach him not to do this again? So I said, Matthew, come here. I got the electric bread knife out. You know, the meat blades, not the bread ones. They're a little sharper. Plugged it in. I said, Matthew, I quoted this verse. And if your right hand causes you to sin, I love you, I love you, son. But Jesus is clear. And you hit your, you hit your brother. He's got tears. I told, I already confessed that was the worst parenting I've ever done. Okay. You don't have to look at me like I'm an ogre. He's got tears streaming down his face. And I'm like, did I go a little too far? I might have gone over the edge. He's got tears streaming down his face. I'm revving the bread knife like my motorcycle. And he sticks his hand out. That was when my heart broke. And I said, son, I love you. I would never do that. That was a terrible joke. And Dyphus is going to be calling me, so don't say anything. Dealing with sin must be instantaneous. It's got to be a ruthless action done by the power and the grace of God. Listen, all the belongings of Tobiah. This is interesting. Now listen to this were tossed out of that room. You know where they went? He didn't put them on the sidewalk with a note to buy it, pick it up and take it home when you can. He didn't do that. I can tell you where he took it. Out the dung gate. That's where they took the trash of the city. Through the dung gate, the lowest point on the wall, out into the valley of Hinnom where there was a fire burning all the time. Hinnom and Hebrew is Gehenna in Greek. It was what Jesus said. There's a fire perpetually burning. And by the way, that's what hell is going to be like. He took Tobiah's belongings. He threw them out. I'm telling you, he took them down to the valley of Hinnom and burned them. Why? So that they can't come back. You don't hold on to sin. You don't just put it in another room and close the door. You've got to get it out of your heart. You've got to get it burned. You've got to destroy it so it can never come back again. And the way that we get this stuff out of our heart through the dung gate, it's called biblically confessing. It means 
to agree. It's got two meanings. It means to agree with God. God's speaking. He's discovering the Tobiah in your heart. And the second meaning means to cast or hurl it on God. You confess your sins. You take that stuff out of the, the lodging place of your heart. You throw it onto the mercies of God. He plunges it in his blood down to the bottom of the ocean. As far as the east is to the west, you turn around. You come back through the gate. You lock the bars so you don't bring it home with you. And one day, here's what's going to happen, Christian brother and sister. One day, this is what we look forward to, our righteously angry Savior is going to either come back or we're going to go to Him. And He's going to reach into our hearts and He's going to yank every bit of Tobiah out of us and He's going to remake us and transform us into His image. And there will be no more Tobiah. But we're not at that day. Right now we're at the day of battle. We battle, we fight to win. We catch and we confess. And then look what it says. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. By the way, this is where we fail right here. These next two steps are where where we fail. When we confess sin at the dung gate, God's going to take you to the fountain gate. This is the way around the wall in chapter 3. It came to the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate. Those are the three in order. You confess sin at the, the dung gate. God's going to take you straight to the fountain gate because you've got to get cleansed. He's going to clean you. This is exactly what, what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, that's dung gate. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to take us to the fountain gate and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've got to get it out and then the room's got to be cleaned. Your heart's got to be made clean. This is where he cleanses us. This is where he restores us with fellowship, to fellowship with God. See, Nehemiah, he's not a priest, so he had to call the priests to cleanse the chambers. You know what he was doing? He was giving a clear message that even the belongings of Tobiah are a stench in the nostrils of God. Friends, sin is always a stench. You might think you've got just a little sin in your heart. Or I might think I've just had a little sin yesterday morning. It's a stench to God. It all stinks. And he wants it out of our hearts and our hearts cleansed. So we throw it out of our hearts through confession. And the Spirit comes in and He scours our hearts clean, restoring fellowship and peace with God. And He makes room for what Nehemiah does next. Fourth step, change. He brings change. Look what He says, And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. You see, Nehemiah had caught the enemy. He cleared him out of the temple. He cleansed the chamber, and now he brings back into it what was supposed to be there. It was supposed to be for the worship of God. Here's the lesson. Can you look at me? Because this is so important. We really don't do this well. We've got to learn to do it better. Expelling sin, friends, it creates a vacuum. And if it's not filled with new and holy and righteous desires, then the old desires will pour back in. It's the way it works. You confess sin out that dung gate, if you don't immediately fill it, 
You don't immediately put the desires of God and it's going to come back. Those old desires will stream back into your life. See, Jesus moves the confessing Christian from the fountain gate. Look at, look at, he goes to the next gate, to the water gate. That's the water gate. The water gate's the gate of the word of God. The spirit of God's going to cleanse you. He's going to take you to the water gate. And the water gate, the word of God's going to pour right desires back in your heart. And transformation is going to come. See, the new nature is the nature of Christ. That the Holy Spirit deposits into your heart the very moment you put your faith in Jesus. Listen, if you've not put your faith in Jesus yet then your old nature is still your present nature and it has domination in your life. You cannot not sin. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus kills the old nature. He begins to subdue it. He puts a new nature in your heart. And now sin is a choice. You can overcome sin because God lives in you. And this is where a lot of us go wrong when we're battling the sin in our lives. You catch the sin, you confess it, you come to the Spirit of God for cleansing, and then we stop. You can't stop. You've got to move to the fountain gate, you've got to get to the water gate so that the Word of God can pour into your life and give you, listen, new desires. Here's how it works. Satan takes a hook and he puts on it the bait of the world, the pleasures of the world. And if you've got new desires that are of God, those desires don't like that lure. They're not being attracted to that lure because they want new things. They want better things. They don't breathe the air of this world anymore. They breathe the air of the kingdom of God. The things of this world have passed away. They don't want them anymore. Now I fished Lake Nakamixon three times. Twice, twice with a guy, I'm telling you, he had at least $20,000 of fishing equipment. He had every bait and every lure that's ever been put on the end of a line. And we tried them all. Now listen, you've got to get this. We're out in a boat. We've got fish literally jumping out of the water all around the boat. I think they're laughing at us now. They're showing, they're spitting water like Coca-Cola plant down in Atlanta. It has that stream of Coke. That's what, they're, they're not really doing that. We couldn't hook them. They wouldn't bite. We couldn't even get a love nibble from them. We could not catch these fish. They didn't want the bait that we had. Listen, if you're dominated with the old desires, the Tobias of your flesh, then every hook that Satan drops... And lures and puts a lure of the world on, your flesh is going to go after it. You've got to catch them, you've got to confess them, you've got to cleanse them, and then you've got to come back and replace them. You've got to get right desires in your heart. How does that happen? Paul said it like this in Colossians. You've got to take off your old clothes. That's the old nature. Those are the Tobias. You've got to get them out of your heart. He said, put to death. That's pretty radical you got to put them to death. Listen, if you've got a desire for porn, you got to put it to death. You can't soft sell it. You can't put the kid gloves on it. This is a battle. It's a battle for your soul. If you don't win, it's going to ruin your marriage. If you don't win, it's going to ruin your relationships. If you don't win, it's going to prevent you from being effective for Christ. 
Some of us are struggling with drugs. Listen, it's a battle. It's a battle. You've got to win. You can fight it. If you've got the new nature, you can get the word of God pouring new desires in you. But Paul said it like this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now you must put them all away. Put off the old self with its practices. You got to take it off. Now listen, here's how you do it. You do it the same way you do it when you go to bed at night. You take off the clothes that you were wearing, one article at a time. And you take lust and you say, Jesus Christ, I am confessing this. I want it out of my heart. I'm asking for your strength. I'm putting it off me and I want to put something else on me. My mouth and slander, gossip and lying, I don't want it anymore. That's the old nature. Those are the Tobias of my flesh. I don't want them. I'm going to take them off. I'm going to take them off. And I'm going to ask you to not put them out in the sidewalk where they please collect when you can sign. I want you to throw them out the dung gate and burn them in the valley of Hinnom. But you've got to do more than that. But then you've got to redress. You've got to put the clothes the king 